Now, if you've been around here at all, you went, one verse? <laughs> why, why, why are we sitting down already? There's usually more to read. All right, if you were here a couple months ago, we were studying the book of Judges. We you know, would go through four or five chapters at a time. Tonight, we're just going to focus on this one verse, chapter 3, verse 8. And you might just be thinking, well, why? Why would we spend a whole sermon? Why would we spend a whole week on just this one Verse. Well, it's because of what we read there in the middle, where it says that in light of the things Paul's written, uh, he wants us to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. Good works is kind of the theme of tonight. Uh, it's a theme that comes up a lot in this book, and, and there's just tons of confusion about the role that good works should and does play in the life of a Christian. There's lots of confusion. There are people who think it's way too important. They think that you're salvation, your eternal destiny, your relationship with God depends on your doing good works, right? That's, that's one kind of extreme. The other extreme are people who think, you know, good works, who really cares if we're saved by grace, good works, good schmirks. What's different does it make? It doesn't really matter at all. And so we're gonna, we're gonna try to make some sense of that. I wanna tell you that on our website, we've posted a, a, just a brief little blog post with a few resources. Uh, one is an article by Dr. Wayne Grudem uh, that a number of you have even read probably, but it's there and it's a really helpful resource on kind of the role of obedience and good, light and good works in the life of a Christian. Also some resources there from Kevin DeYoung, a sermon uh, from a recent conference and a book. If you wanna dig deeper into what we talk about tonight, uh, those resources are there um, and have really been helpful for me in putting this message together. So just know that that's, uh, that's there if you want to check it out. All right. Well, to kind of recap what we've been looking at in the book of Titus, the whole book of Titus has been about living a healthy Christian life. Chapter one was really about living a healthy Christian life as a church. Chapter two was really living a healthy Christian life uh, as a home in the household. Chapter three is about living a healthy Christian life in the world. And we got kind of this equation for a healthy Christian life back in chapter one, verse one. There it said, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And so week after week after week, we've put this equation up there, that faith plus knowledge of the truth plus godliness, that's what leads to health. It's not just what about you believe, that's part of it. It's not just what you know, that's part of it. It's also what you do, your godliness, your obedience, your imitating the Lord with your life and your conduct. That idea comes through a lot in this book. The, the, the phrase good work or good works actually shows up in this book six times, which, which may not seem like a lot, but think about this. Uh, that phrase actually is used by Paul in all of his writings only 18 times. So a third of the time that he mentions good works is here in this book of Titus. Isn't that interesting? And it makes sense because he's writing to a, a, a new church that Titus, this guy he's mentored and, and discipled, is now leading. And it's in this island of Crete where people are very much just doing whatever they want. And so there's an emphasis here on, on good works. Take a look with me, just kind of going back through the book at all these instances of it. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul is uh, talking about these false teachers who uh, are a problem to this church. It says, uh, verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Titus, you need to be the opposite of that. Uh, you need to uh, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, right? Titus, you're to be different. 
Then in chapter 2, verse 14, right after uh, he has said that the grace of God has appeared, and a few weeks ago uh, we pointed out that the grace of God coming isn't the grace of God in a concept or in an idea, but in a person. The grace of God comes as Jesus. And Jesus, verse 14 of chapter 2, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, this is what we looked at last week. In light of that, then Paul says, remind everybody to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then here tonight, he says, The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Almost the exact same thing as he'll say in our passage next week in verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. What are good works? Just since we're gonna talk about it, I don't know how many times I'll mention it. Some kid in here will probably keep a tally and tell me afterward. We're going to mention it a few times tonight. What what are we talking about? Well, a good work is any action that is done out of love for God or love for people. An action that's done out of love for God or love of people. Something that is done in order to praise God, in order to honor God, in order to worship God. Something that is done in order to love another person or bless another person or be generous to another person or extend grace to another person. All of these things are good works. And Paul says it's a really important part of the Christian life. But there've been just all these misunderstandings about it. Maybe coming in from other religions, I think maybe as much as anything, the default setting of our heart is such that we just misunderstand the role of works. So there's two kind of main areas of confusion that we're going to look at tonight. The first one uh, has to do with people who think good works are too important. They're meritorious. They kind of, uh, you know, they earn you a bunch. The second are people who think good works just aren't that important. They're kind of optional. It's it's no big deal. So that's what we're going to look at. The first one, folks who think good works are meritorious. I just wanted to feel real smart with a big word there. So meritorious, uh, you see the word in there, earning merit, right? That's the idea, that, that the good works earn or merit or deserve some sort of blessing from God, specifically saving relationship with God. So the idea that we're uh, separated from God because of our sin, but if we do good works, we go to church, we read the Bible, we serve the poor, we give money, we fill in the blank, then God will accept us. By the way, there's also irreligious versions of this, people who aren't necessarily looking for salvation from God, but they think, if I am a tolerant person, then I'll know I'm somebody. If I'm a hardworking person, then I'll know I count, right? It, it's, it's that same idea. What I perform, what I deliver, what I do merits how God views me or how I view me. And Paul emphatically in this passage and elsewhere in the scripture says, no, that is a misunderstanding. Look at what he says in chapter three, verse eight. He says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. Which you go, okay, what saying? 
What's the trustworthy saying that is to be insisted on? That word insist, actually, in the, if you have the NIV, the New International Version translation, it'll say, I want you to stress these things. Paul's saying, hey, Titus, as you're leading this church, this is a drum you've just got to keep beating. Insist on it. Stress it. It's really, really important. Well, what is he talking about? What are the these things? What's the trustworthy saying? Well, we've got to back up and just look at what he said right before this. This is a passage we looked at last week. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, really is just a great summary of the gospel. That's the thing that we're supposed to keep uh, focusing on. Chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's who you are apart from God. How's that sound? Pretty good? Like, I haven't seen that on a resume before, right? But that's who we are. That's who we are apart from the intervening grace of God. We're foolish and lots of malice and not getting along and ruled by our passions. And then there's this amazing word in verse four, but. I actually have a file on my computer. Someday I hope to do a series. I've got at least 20 messages for it as I've gone through the whole Bible called The Big Butts of the Bible. (laughs) That'd be kind of a fun series, wouldn't it? And, uh, It's all these kinds of things. You were this way, verse four, but, oh, what a glorious word, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, how did that happen? Jesus. When that happened, verse five, he saved us, and get this, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, that word justified means to be declared righteous. It's the idea of this courtroom imagery that you're declared not guilty, and not just not guilty, but you're declared perfectly righteous. We're justified by his grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the trustworthy saying. That's the thing that Paul says, don't stop beating that drum. Don't stop stressing this. You were foolish, you were lost, you were helpless and hopeless apart from God, but Jesus showed up. And when Jesus showed up, he saved you. And he washed you. And he renewed you. And he poured out his spirit on you. And he made you an heir. If you're an heir, you know what that means? That means you have an inheritance. And why did all of that come to you? Was it because God looked around and went, who are all the good little boys and girls that I could give this wonderful gift to? No. Not because of right works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And so Paul says, Titus, insist on that. Don't walk away from that. In all the things I'm gonna talk about with good works, don't ever forget that good works don't merit you salvation. Well, Paul insisted on this himself. If you read all of Paul's letters, you'll see this theme over and over and over. Let me just give you a a few examples. Here's one in Galatians 2, 16. Paul says, "Uh, we know that a person is not justified, again, not made right with God, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. How do you get salvation? You trust Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, 
no one will be justified. Right, that is just so clear. You won't be made right with God by your works. They don't merit salvation. He says the same thing in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. He says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Here's one of the most famous ones, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, do good works merit salvation? No. But we often live as though we think they do. I think about it this way. I think about how, how what, what Paul describes in verse three, our foolishness and our sin, and our passions and our slavery and all that sort of stuff, that is, is uh, symbolic. That, that pictures the gap that exists between us and God apart from Jesus, right? And if you just think about what's a big gap, what's the biggest gap you could imagine? To me, it's the Grand Canyon. Uh, Abby, my uh, fourth grader, her class did a field trip to the Grand Canyon a few weeks ago. I had to drop her off at 4 a.m. at the school we picked her up at uh, 9.30. They went up and, you know, up there and back in one day. Uh, they gave parents the opportunity to be chaperones, spend the whole day on a bus. I was like, I think Dante included that in one of his layers of hell. I'm not exactly sure, but we'll, we'll drop her off and pick her up, thanks. That'll be fine uh, for us. Um, so you're there at the Grand Canyon, right? There's a big gap between you and the other side. And that's kind of a good picture of how big the gap is between us and God. But somehow a lot of us think, well, if I just really work hard, if I really do a good job, I can bridge the gap. But it's folly, it's foolish. Uh, imagine this, imagine that, that we were gonna have a jump the Grand Canyon contest. All right, and uh, contestant number one is me. Contestant number two Matthew Brazelton, the guy playing guitar a little bit ago. Contestant number three, LeBron James. Anybody going for the short, uh, stocky guy? You think I'm gonna win that one? Right, no, I mean, I'm, I'll get further than you think. I was called Quadzilla in college, that was my nickname, so I've got a little strength in there, right? But I could run and jump, and I'll get further than you think. Brazelton, Mr. Daddy Longlegs, he'll jump. Shorter than you think, but it's still further than me. He'll go further than me. LeBron will get going. Oh my gosh, he'll sky, he'll fly through there. And what will happen to all three of us? Splat. Why? Because the gap's too big. And you might be the LeBron James of good works. You get up every day early to pray, to read. You're disciplined. You serve the poor. You have a heart for the lost. You pray about missions. Most of us struggle to just pray. You pray about missions. You pray about the people all over the world who don't know Jesus. I mean, you just are like Navy SEAL, serious Christian. But at best, your good works still land you splat. If you're trying to use those good works to merit salvation, right? The only thing that can bridge that gap is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who didn't just do good works, he did perfect works. He perfectly obeyed his father. So if we trust him, then we can have salvation. Then he bridges the gap. 
Do you get that? If you're here tonight and you're thinking, I'm going to just try harder. I'm going to clean things up. I'm going to be good. It doesn't work. It doesn't lead to salvation. Here's a big idea for tonight is that good works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Good works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. And people misunderstand this all the time. I don't know if it's because of a misunderstanding of the Old Testament versus the New Testament, right? That's sometimes how Christians have, tell me if you've ever heard this. Have you ever heard someone say, well, in the Old Testament, you uh, got a relationship with God by obeying the law. But in the New Testament, we get a relationship with God through Jesus. Anybody ever heard that? No, I'm the only one that's ever heard that? No one's ever heard that? It's wrong. It's wrong. It's not right at all. That's a very common way to think about it. People think, oh, well, the Old Testament God, he was very angry. The New Testament God, he's very nice. The reality is when you read the Bible, what you see is that God has always saved people, not on the basis of their works, and then after he rescued them, he's called them to live a life of good works because good works have always been the fruit, not the root, right? Read the book of Exodus. What you'll see is the first 19 chapters are God graciously, mercifully delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt and heading them on a direction toward a new promised land. He saves them. They barely even know who he is. They don't know hardly anything about him. They've been in slavery there for 400 years. They just know their life is really, really hard. And he sends Moses and he rescues them. And then it's not till chapter 20 that he says, okay, here's the 10 commandments. Do these good works, not to earn relationship with me. You already have that. I'm already your God. Do these good works to be a light to the nations. Do these good works because it's a better way to live. Do these good works because it's a path to joy. Good works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Paul says this again all over the place. Ephesians 2, we just looked at it, right? Where he said, "Grace uh, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And then look at the very next verse. Hey, 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 you're not gonna be saved by your works. But look at the next verse. For we are his workmanship. That word is that idea of that God is a master craftsman. He is crafting you to do certain things. What? You are, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hey, good works are part of the Christian life. They're just the fruit, not the root. We saw the same thing in Titus 2.11. Look back there. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's Exodus language even, who are zealous for good works. So to just summarize this, what's the relationship between good works and salvation? Here it is. Good works don't come before salvation. Good works don't cause salvation. Good works don't deserve salvation. Instead, good works come because of salvation and good works testify to salvation. So that first area of confusion says, good works, they merit, right? like my ultimate standing before God depends on what I do. No, 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 no. Depends on Jesus and good works are the fruit. 
Now, here's the second confusion that people have. It's that good works are optional. Who cares? It doesn't really matter. Right? Maybe the first confusion says good works are meritorious. That's too important, too important a view. This view is too unimportant. Good works are, yeah, they're optional, they're irrelevant. I mean, the idea here is, well, if I'm saved by grace, if my ticket to eternal life is stamped because of Jesus, well, then who cares what I do? Who cares how I live? But Paul doesn't have that attitude at all. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may do whatever they want. Oh, wait, that's not what it said, did it? You're looking along with me, right? No, he says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul says, listen, the good works, they're excellent, they're profitable. There's something we should be careful about being devoted to. They're really, really important. It's interesting there too. I just, I love looking at the specific wording sometimes of, of these verses. Look at it with me. Get your nose in that book or on your phone. Look at verse eight. Notice, he doesn't say, so that those who have believed in God may devote themselves to good works. What does he say? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What does that mean? He's saying, I don't just want you to stumble into good works. I want you to be intentional about it. I want you to be careful. That's what that word means. It means to concentrate, to give sustained thought. In light of this amazing grace you've got, you've been given by Jesus, give some thought, give some attention, give some concentration to the ways that you might love God and love your neighbors. Concentrate on that. Think about that. Here's, here's the way you might think about it is good works are Mother's Day, not Father's Day. All right, we're to view good works like we view Mother's Day, not Father's Day. What do you, go, what do you mean? Well, Father's Day, let's just be honest, it's kind of an afterthought, right? Most of the time. And honestly, that's okay. Like we get way too much attention, ladies. You do way too much work for us dads anyway. Like we, we're way too lazy most of the time. So we get it. Like, you know, you get up and go, what color tie are we going to get dad? Well, dad doesn't wear ties. Well, but I don't know what else to get him, right? I mean, it's just like you don't think about it a lot, and that's fine. But Mother's Day, you're thinking, oh, breakfast in bed. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to get that cinnamon roll she likes, and I'm going to get up early, and where are we going to get the flowers? And, and kids, let's all make sure we write really nice notes and cards, and where are we going to go to lunch, right? There's a lot of attention, a lot of thought, a lot of planning given to Mother's Day. And there should be, right, ladies? And I mean that in the most pandering way possible. <laughs> right? The, the, that's, that's the role of good works. That's, that's how we're to view them. Paul's saying, don't just stumble into them. Don't just trip into good works. Don't go, oh, wow, I guess I did a good work. He says, give thoughtful attention, crafting how you're going to live a life of loving God and loving people. So we looked at the role between uh, salvation and good works. What about the role between our spiritual growth or the, the theological word is our sanctification in our good works? What's the relationship there? Well, think about this. Your spiritual growth, good works are 
your growth. I'll do this sometimes. I'll sit with somebody and I'll say, hey, on a scale of one to 10, and you could just play along just silently in your head, pick yourself a number. On a scale of one to 10, how much do you think you're growing in your faith right now? One is, I feel real stuck. There's barely a pulse. 10 is, oh my gosh, it's never been, I've never grown more. You think of a number? I'll ask people and they say whatever they say. And then I ask this question. What criteria did you use to pick the number you picked? And almost every time I've asked that question, the answer comes back something in the category of knowledge or study. Well, I've been reading, so I gave myself a seven. Well, I really haven't read the Bible lately, so it's a two. Well, I, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of that sort of personal knowledge. Well, I took this class. I've been listening to this podcast. I've really found this new thing lately. What did Jesus say was the most important commandment? Love God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. Do you need to know some things to do that? Sure, yes. But it's love and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So it's actually your good works that are the growth. That's the category you should use. Are you growing in love of God and love of neighbor? If so, you're growing. And if not, I don't care how many books you've read. You're not growing. Here's the second thing. Good works develop growth. The more we do things that love God and love other people, that love our church, that love our neighbors, that love our family, that love uh, the people God has put in our life, that love the people at work, the more we do that, even when we don't feel like it, because let's be honest, we don't feel like it a lot of the time, right? And if we wait till our motives just feel perfect and we're doing it all for the right reasons, we'll probably never do anything. But when we do good works, when we step out in love to people, it actually grows our ability to keep doing it. So that's how this happens. That's why this is so important. And Jesus for sure thought that good works were an important thing. He didn't think they were optional. He didn't think they were unimportant. Take a look at some things that Jesus said about the role of good works for his followers. First, Jesus said that good works are evidence of love for him. Good works are evidence of love for him. John 14, here's what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Sorry, I kept reading. It's not on the screen, that's fine. So good works are evidence of love for Jesus. You love him, keep his commandments. That sounds important. Secondly, Jesus says that good works lead to joy. Good works are actually a, a real path of blessing, Jesus says. Here's what he says in John 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How would it be to have the joy of Jesus in you? Do you think that could transcend your circumstance? Do you think that could transcend your finances and your in-laws and what other other difficulty things you're facing? 
the joy of Jesus in you. How does that happen? By keeping his commandments, abiding in his love. That's what he says. That sounds really important. Jesus also says this, good works give evidence to true relationship with Jesus. Luke 6, 46 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And Lord here doesn't just mean God. It also means master. Why do you call me master? Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, hallelujah. Yeah, well, well then obey me. Do what I say. If you don't do that, how do I know that you even really see me as your Lord? And then this is just what an amazing opportunity we have here, this last one. Jesus said that good works glorify God in the world. Good works are actually a way that the world can look around and see, oh my gosh, God is real. Here's what he said. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Notice it doesn't say that they may see your knowledge, that they may see all of the things you've learned. No, that they may see your good works. People should be seeing our lives and going, wow, there's something to that. That's different. I, well, how, how do I explain that? Here's an amazing thing that I came across um, from Roy Hattersley. Roy Hattersley is a former deputy leader of the Labour Party in the UK, which I know all of you are super familiar with what that means. Um, the Labour Party is one of their political parties. He was kind of an influential leader uh, there a few years back. Uh, for a significant amount of time. And uh, Hattersley is a, an outspoken atheist. Absolutely does not believe in God, thinks that Christianity is foolish, etc. And here's what he writes. This is such a perfect example of people seeing good works and giving glory to God, even though they don't believe in him. Look at what he says, atheist writing. The arguments against religion are well-known and persuasive. Yet men and women who believe are the people most likely to take the risks and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Good works, John Wesley insisted. John Wesley's a well-known British preacher from years, hundreds of years ago. Good works, John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. That's an atheist writing that. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make them morally superior to atheists like me. The truth may make us free, right? He's saying the truth of atheism. There's no God. That makes you free, he's saying. The truth may make us free, but it has not made us as admirable as the average captain in the Salvation Army. Wow, there's some honesty there. What is that? That is someone seeing the love, the sacrifice, the generosity of God's people, seeing their good works and giving glory to God, even though he says, I still don't believe in him. That sounds like a wonderful opportunity. That sounds really important. That sounds like, at least to Jesus, good works really matter. So, so how do we kind of get off here? 
Well, where do we get off key? Where, where do the errors come in as it relates to this? Well, there's two errors that I want to caution us against uh, as it relates to this confusion about whether good works are optional or important, that kind of a thing. Uh, one error is that good works are automatic. Some people, they think, well, it's not that important because it's just going to happen, right? If it's fruit, well, the fruit's going to grow. I don't need to water. I don't need to pull weeds. I don't need to do any of that. It's just going to grow. Here's how we say it. I just need to let go and let God, right? Now, I appreciate the heart of let go, let God. It's saying, I don't want to take matters into my own hands. I don't want to try to be my own God. I just need to trust the Lord. I appreciate that heart. But the language, particularly of the New Testament, is much more aggressive when it talks about how we fight sin, how we say no to ungodliness, how we say yes to loving God and loving people. Aggressive language. Take a look at these verses. Uh, Romans 8.13 says that by the Spirit, we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. Ephesians 4 instructs us to put off the old self and put on the new, that's active. Colossians 3 commands us to put to death what is earthly in us. 1 Timothy 6.12 urges us to fight the good fight. Luke 13, Jesus exhorts us to strive to enter the narrow gate. 1 Corinthians 9 speaks of running a race and disciplining the body. Philippians 3 talks of pressing on and straining forward. First, 2 Peter 1 flat out commands us to make every effort to add godliness to our faith. And Revelation 2 and 3 shows that the reward of eternal life goes to those who conquer and overcome. Now, aren't those words much more active, much more violent, much more intentional? This is not just sitting back and go, well, good works will happen. Good works are automatic. No, this is like Paul is saying, being careful, concentrating on being devoted to good works, pressing on, striving, fighting, overcoming, conquering, right? That's the language of the New Testament. Now, you can fight and you can strive and you can kill your sin and you can put off and put on. Does any of that earn you salvation? Class? No. But it is a path toward growing in godliness, growing in love of God, growing in love of others. So we don't want to just say, oh, good works are automatic. No, we want to, we want to grow. We want to push hard toward love of other people. Here's the second error that I think we need to avoid. And this is one that's actually, until a few years ago, I'd never really even heard this kind of an objection come up. And to me, it's actually evidence of good gospel teaching with maybe just a little misunderstanding in there. All right, so here's this kind of next error that we need to avoid. is someone that might say, you know, God doesn't really care about obedience because he's already pleased with me in Christ. God doesn't care about whether I obey, whether I do good works, because he's already pleased with me in Christ. All right, here we go. Is that true in an ultimate sense, in a courtroom of heaven sense, in a are you gonna go to heaven or not sense? Is that true? Yes, yes. 
When it comes to our eternal destiny, our in or out of salvation, it doesn't depend on our works, it depends on Jesus. And if we trust in Christ, then God looks at us and he is, uh, his ultimate approval is on us, not because of us, but because of Christ. So then people will go, well then, good works, what, is it, what difference does it make? Here's the problem with that. If, if you fall into that way of thinking, here's what you've done. You've actually, maybe without knowing it, and maybe well-intentioned, you have truncated, you have shrunk who God is to be merely a judge. Right? There is language in the Bible that describes God as a judge, that describes salvation as this sort of courtroom drama. Right? We even said the word justified is, is legal language. Are you declared righteous or are you declared guilty? Right? There's this declaration. There's this legal thing. But, but the legal stuff, that the God is judge, that's not the only way that the Bible describes God, is it? Right? When his disciples went to Jesus and they said, teach us to pray, he didn't say, pray like this, our judge who's in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He didn't, he could have, right? That's an accurate description of God. He's a judge. He didn't say, pray like this, our king who's in heaven. Oh, that's accurate. He didn't say, pray our rock who's in heaven. That's accurate too. What did Jesus say? He said, pray like this, our Father, who's in heaven. What happens is if you think, well, I'm good with Jesus, so who cares what I do? You've just shrunk God to a little judge God. And you actually don't care about having a relationship with him. You don't see him in a personal way. You just see him in a legal way. And I think this is one of the great tools of the enemy. I think the enemy, I think Satan would love for people to think God just that way. You know why? Because then what would happen is they would go to an event. They would get invited to church. They'd get invited to a crusade. They'd get invited to some thing. And someone would get up and say, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? People go, I don't want to go to hell. Well, believe in Jesus. You're guilty in the courtroom of heaven, and if you believe in Jesus, you'll be declared not guilty. Come forward, walk an aisle, sign this thing. Listen, I don't have a problem necessarily with altar calls. I think they can be done well. I think they can be done poorly. But sometimes people have heard this gospel that's only Jesus as God as judge. And what happens is they go, well, I don't want to go to hell. Sign me up. But they've never been told they're signing up for a relationship with God. And so they walk around really like pagans who think they've been stamped with, I'm going to heaven. So they don't honor God, and yet they think they're Christians. Can you think of anything that would thrill the enemy more than lots of people walking around thinking they're believers who aren't? What an amazing tool for him. And then there's another tool that, that just breaks my heart, is that I think the enemy would like Christians 
who genuinely, out of love for God, not trying to earn favor with him, but just because they love their heavenly father, they obey him, they do good works, they love one another, they serve, they sacrifice, right? Some of you, you are caring for aging parents and it is really hard work. Some of you are caring for new little baby kids and it is hard work. Some of you are being patient with that coworker that nobody likes and you keep extending grace and you keep reaching out and you keep blessing and that's a good work. And when you do it, not thinking that you're trying to merit anything, but you do it just because you love your heavenly father, you should experience God's smile at that, shouldn't you? And wouldn't it be satanic to say, no, you shouldn't enjoy that, you can't do anything good because God's just a judge. God would delight for us to experience his pleasure in our obedience. Wouldn't he? Right, he's a, he's a heavenly father. Right, Father's Day is coming up and I have some conscientious kids like many of you do. And, and for those of you dads who you get, uh, you know, you'll get something from your kids. They'll draw you a picture. Uh, they'll uh, write you a card. And if you're a good father, you'll look at that picture and it'll have little hands and it'll have a giant head and you might be a like really vibrant color that you aren't in real life. You're not gonna look at that and go, do it again, get it out of here, I don't like it. You're gonna hang it on your fridge, why? Because you know your kid's not doing that to so they can become your kid. They're already your kid. And now you look at their even imperfect attempt to obey you and to delight you. And you go, I love it. Wouldn't that be how our Heavenly Father is? Some of you are parents of older kids. And uh, you've experienced the time when your, uh, your older kids, they break curfew. Anybody uh, know what I'm talking about? I'm not there yet, someday. And uh, what happens is, right, you've given a curfew and your kid is still not home and they're not home and so you go and you sit by the door in the dark. At least this is how I imagine it, right? You, <laughs> you sit there and you wait. And maybe you're praying. Maybe you're thinking, oh, Lord, I hope they're okay. I don't know what happened. Lord, are they safe? Are they all right? Part of you is going, oh, I told them that they were supposed to be home, right? And you're just, you're dealing with all of that. Then at some point you hear the door opens and they tiptoe in. And you turn the light on and they see you. <laughs> That's again how I imagine it. We'll see. <laughs> There's two things that a good father says at that moment. One is, I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad you're safe. I'm glad you're okay. It's great to have you home. And the second is, where have you been? Where have you been? You were supposed to be home an hour ago. Right? A good father says both. Some of you, your view of God is that he's a father who only says, where have you been? What's wrong? You blew it. Come on. You got to perform better. You got to do better. No, you don't have a father like that. You have a father who also says, I'm so glad you're home. 
And some of you, your view of God is a God who just only says, I'm so glad you're home. And he never says, where have you been? And he never says, hey, I, I, want, you to, I want you to do better next time. And, and you're capable of more. And he never challenges you. Neither is a biblical view of God. Neither is a biblical picture of a heavenly father. But we have a good father. Is he a judge? Yes. Is he the king? Sure. Is he the rock? Absolutely. But he is our heavenly father. And our heavenly father delights when his children, who have already put their trust in God, in Christ, come to him and say, it's not perfect, but I love you. Here's my good works. What is God inviting you to walk in? What good works do you need to be thinking about? What good works has God created for you this week? And, and this is an invitation now to think about it and to prepare for it and to do it as an act of joy, to do it as an act of worship, not to try to earn God's approval. You already have that if you're a Christian, but simply to please and delight your heavenly Father who is delighting in you. Let's pray.